Let's open our Bibles tonight to Habakkuk chapter number 3. Habakkuk chapter number 3 tonight. And uh, what a blessing it is to be in the Lord's house. Amen. A lot of places we could be. You didn't say amen to that. You ain't very spiritual. Let's try that again. Fred did. Amen. Uh, it's good to be in the Lord's house tonight. Amen. Now I think you're somebody. All right. Habakkuk chapter number 3. And uh, boy, I'm excited for what God has in store this week. I'm excited to see God work in my life and work in your life. The reason we have these series of meetings is not just to say we've had a series of meetings. The reason we have them is so that God has more opportunity to work in our hearts, in our lives. Now you say, well, preacher, God could work in our hearts whether we was at the house of God or not. And while I agree with you in theory, I'd say the problem is for most of us is we ain't even letting him work in our heart here when we're at the house of God. So why would we think he'd work in our heart sitting in the recliner at home watching gun smoke? Or why would we think he'd uh, do it at the Dollywood? Or why would we think he'd do it at the golf course? You say, preacher, can't he find me there? Yeah, that's the problem. He can find us there. Amen. He ought to be able to find us here. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, in this place, you say, well, preacher, God can work anywhere. And I agree with, with you about that. I know that he can. Uh, but I also know that he loved the church and gave himself for it. And I know that he gave us a local New Testament church and a place where we could gather and worship. And uh, if we didn't need that, he wouldn't have given it to us. Amen. Uh, you say, preacher, quit fussing at me. I'm not fussing at you. Uh, isn't that amazing how I can read your mind? I'm not fussing at you. I'm just saying this week, you might think to yourself, well, you know, revival's an extra thing. It's an on top of everything thing. No, it's an essential thing. We need it. Amen. And uh, the moment we think we don't need it, that's when we need it the most in our lives. So I'm saying make time this week to be in the house of God. Uh, Habakkuk chapter number three tonight. I'd like to read just two verses and then we'll pray. Habakkuk chapter number three and we'll read the first two verses of the chapter. It begins almost like a psalm would. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigenon. Verse 2 says this, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these sweet people that have gathered here, Lord. They're here because they love you. They're here because they're interested in the Word of God. And they're here because they desire a closer walk with Thee. And Lord, I pray that would be granted to them tonight, that You would work effectually in our hearts and in our minds and show ourselves uh, our great need, Lord, and, and that maybe the things in our life that would prevent or hinder us growing, I pray that You'd expose those things to us. And Lord, the things in our life that may be lacking, areas where we need to draw closer and, and step up and do more, I pray that You would work in our hearts and minds and make those plain to us. And Lord, in areas in our life where we just simply need encouragement, Lord, we need to be reminded that You're God, that nothing's beyond Your ability, nothing's beyond Your capability, Lord, that You have power in all circumstances and power over all things. I pray that You give us the encouragement that we need in those areas. And Lord, we know that if what You desire to be done is accomplished in our lives, we know that it will be for Your glory and for our good. So we yield ourselves to You tonight, Lord, and we ask for all these things that are done to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're getting ready, as we said, to enter into a short series of meetings. Uh, we call it revival. And uh, I would say this, that 
Uh, I, I don't fuss too much about the usage one way or the other. I've heard people say we're, we're, we're hoping for revival. We shouldn't just call a series of meetings revival. But I would say this, that in labeling them revival, we are by faith trusting God for what we desire for Him to do for us. Now, I do think the distinction is important to say. You can get together and have church and not have revival. All over the city today, there were churches that met. God went within a thousand miles of what took place in, in there. And by the way, let me say this, there's a lot of churches where God did meet with folks and they weren't all, the way, all of them named Walridge either, amen? So I'm not trying to convince you that the sun rises and sets on what's going on here, but I'm saying there are a plethora of churches that met and they had meetings and they discussed things and uh, probably had snacks, I don't know, and, and then they went home and what they had may have been a lot of different things, but it wasn't what the Bible describes as church. And so what we call things is of importance. And it's true you can have a series of meetings and revival not take place. But I'm not believing and, and, and thinking that way. I, I have the same attitude that the Apostle Paul had when he wrote uh, the book of Hebrews. And he said, but brethren, uh, you know, we, we expect better things. We trust better things. We look for better things. We believe better things of you. There are a lot of folks not living right and doing right. But Paul said, I'm just going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're going to do right, that you're going to live right. Hey, listen, this week you say, preacher, what could happen? I'll tell you what could happen. Revival could happen. Could happen in your life and in my life, in our church life. Could happen in a greater sense in our community as it spills forth. And so uh, I would say this. I understand when folks say, you know, well, we shouldn't call it revival. We don't know if it's revival yet. And I, listen, I understand that. Uh, but uh, I'm looking for revival and I'm trusting for revival and I'm asking for revival. And so using the term revival is not necessarily a statement of boasting or presumption, but rather it's a statement of faith. We're asking God, by the way, just as Habakkuk did here, uh, for God to revive His work in our hearts and in our families. What do we look for when we're looking for revival? You know, we just studied through the book of Habakkuk in our Apollos course uh, this past spring. An amazing study, a fascinating uh, journey through this short book of the Bible and the richness of of it. If you study the book of Habakkuk, you'll find uh, that it was a period of time where the children of Judah, of the southern kingdom, were living in open rebellion against God. And Habakkuk is troubled by what he sees around him. He comes to God and he essentially says, God, why are you allowing all of this wickedness to take place? God, aren't you going to judge the wickedness in society? God answers back to Habakkuk and said, well, I'm glad you brought that up, Habakkuk. In fact, I am going to judge the wickedness in society. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans. He calls it that hasty and bitter nation. The Babylonians are going to come and be the arm and instrument of the judgment of God upon the children of Israel. That then presents to Habakkuk another problem, which is this. Lord, I wanted you to judge us, but I figured sure enough you'd judge us with somebody more spiritual than the Babylonians. God, I thought you would use someone more upright and more virtuous and more, more just to judge us. How can you judge us with them? They're wicked. They're ungodly. And God's answer, of course, back to Habakkuk is this. Habakkuk, trust me, and you'll see that I'll do everything in proper measure, everything in proper way. And he says, that's true. I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge you, but then I'm going to judge the Babylonians for their hastiness, for their bitterness, for their anger. And when we come down to chapter 3, we get down to really, I think, what is the substance, really what I think uh, is the meaning behind the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was not really longing 
simply to see a work of God in the nation. Really what he needed, more than anything, is to see a work of God in his own heart. I don't know about you, but I think our nation needs revival. I really don't see how anybody with a King James Bible and a, and a clear mind for thoughts could read their Bible and look at our nation and not say our nation needs revival. Uh, we are a nation that, uh, like Israel of old, we are bent towards backsliding. And we are a nation that I just don't see how much longer God in His loving kindness and mercy can withhold His judgment uh, from our land. We are a, a nation that needs revival. But can I say to you, more than our nation needs it, you and I need it. And you might say, well, preacher, there's more wicked men than me in this world, and that is probably true. But I would say that tonight, those men are not going to be reached unless we are first reached. The revival that we need is not going to start in Washington. It's not going to start uh, in some grand, magnificent, global conference or meeting or uh, series of meetings. Uh, revival begins in the heart of God's people. God's people. And you say, preacher, as we endeavor in this week, do you believe that it's possible for God to give revival? And I would say this, when I read my Bible, I can't help but believe that it's possible for God to give revival. What does revival look like? I just jotted these down. I'm really not going to uh, emphasize them too much because you've probably seen God work in your life and I'm thankful to have seen Him work in mine. But if we were to describe what revival is. What is Habakkuk praying for in chapter 3? What's he asking God to do? I think we have to go back to chapter 1 to learn what that is. When he approaches God with this problem, what is it that he feels like needs to be done? Well, if we look in Habakkuk chapter 1, I want you to notice a few verses with me. In verse number 2 of chapter 1, Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? Uh, for spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slapped, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. He would go on to invoke God's holiness in verse 13. He would say this, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? You say, preacher, what does revival look like? I would say, number one tonight, it's a revival of personal righteousness in our lives. Habakkuk is deeply troubled because of the wickedness of society. He says, I look around and though these people know the truth of God, they're not following the truth of God. Can I say in your life and mine, if God gets a hold of us, it's going to clean our lives. It's going to change how we live. A revival is no revival. It does not change the life of the person uh, that God grants revival to. It may be a spiritual movement. It may be an event that we can't even really quite understand or describe uh, on their behalf and we just have to take their word. But irrespective of that, what we're looking for is not just for some feeling to run down our spine. What we're looking for is not just uh, for some great uh, vision to take place in, in, in our mind or in our, our heart. What we're asking God to do is to make us a more righteous people. Make us more clean and holy in the way that we live. You with me tonight? Don't Come on, don't make me get the bullwhip out. Help me a little bit tonight. He's looking for a revival 
of personal righteousness. Down in verse number 12, you have this sort of transcendent moment for Habakkuk. As he's praying, and by the way, he's still not got all the answers, but he does get an answer. Can I just say, this is a little aside, and I don't know why I'm saying it, except I believe the Lord wants me to. Uh, we ought to praise God for an answer, even if we don't have every answer. Sometimes we want every answer. We rarely get every answer. But Habakkuk, he don't get every answer at once, but he gets an answer. He gets a word from God. And he says this in verse number 12 of chapter 1. He says, Art not that, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die, he says. We shall not die, he says. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Now, at the moment that Habakkuk pins these words down, uh, the Babylonians are a menacing presence over the children of Israel. Uh, it, it would be almost unthinkable that they could survive an onslaught, an attack from a world power like the Babylonians. But in, in simple faith, here is the conclusion that Habakkuk comes to. God's working in our lives, therefore He must not be done with us and if He's not done with us, irrespective of what we are facing, we shall not die. God has ordained this threat for judgment and for chastening and for cleansing and for correction in our life. I'd say this, that revival uh, is a revival of personal righteousness, but it is a revival of powerful faith. It is a revival of us trusting God day by day in our everyday life. Habakkuk says, I have no reason to think we could survive this onslaught, but just knowing that God's in control, I'm trusting Him that He's able, and I'm trusting Him that He'll take care of us. Can I say one of the greatest things we ought to praise God for is His working in our life. That ought to indicate to us that God ain't done with us. Hey, listen, I got news for you, not just, not just physically in the sense of physical death, although I'd say this, your days are numbered like mine are. Before we're ever born, God has set aside a day. Uh, through which we're going to die. And there's there's a few things in God's Word that we can do to shorten our days. Uh, and they relate to spiritual things. They relate to disobedience to God and disregarding the truth of His Word. God has established that day, whatever that day may be. Uh, you and I do not have the power, I don't believe, outside of living in disobedience and hastening it. We don't have the power to stay that day or to forestall that day. But I'd say this, that spiritually in your life and mine, God's desire is not that we would live in defeat, but rather that we would live in victory. The chastening He brings into our life is just that. It is chastening. And chastening is not punitive in nature. Chastening is coercive in nature. It's meant to elicit a response. Listen, I don't chasten my kids because I'm done with them. I chasten my kids because I'm still going to have to live with them. Somebody say amen to that. God deals with us because He's still working in our life. Habakkuk see this, sees this and he says, you know, I, I just have faith that God's not done here. I have faith that we shall not die. I have faith that God is going to do a work in this place. And then down in verse number 16, he's talking about the Babylonians in chapter 1. He's talking about how that they worship their own power and worship their own strength and uh, how that they draw men in like fish in a net and how that they feel as though they have the mastery over their destiny and life situation. And he says this in verse number 16, Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat is plenteous. Here's what he's asked God to do in verse number 15. He says, they take up all of them with the angle, they catch them 
in their net, gather them in their drag, therefore they rejoice and are glad. He goes on to say, Lord, I desire that you obliterate their power. I desire that you tear holes in the nets of their own ability and their own strength. And here's what he's saying. I desire that you put away their false gods from their own confidence. I would say that revival in your life and mine is a revival of personal righteousness and it is a revival of powerful faith, but it is a revival of genuine worship in our lives. Habakkuk looks around and he sees that spiritual life in Israel has been hollowed out to nothing but mere formalism and that there are pagan armies marching on their steps that do not believe in the true God of the Bible. And he's troubled because he's wondering what happens to true worship in Israel, what happens to true worship in Judah, in Jerusalem. And so he's begging God to do something uh, to preserve the way of true worship in their nation. I would say this, that when we have revival in our lives, Worship becomes the real deal, the real thing. It's not just the carrying out of a duty or a responsibility, but rather it is the meeting together with God to deal in accordance over our lives and over our autonomy and over our decisions and over our will and the submitting of it unto Him. And I would say that uh, the more that we have revival in our lives, the more rich worship becomes. Uh, So this is what Habakkuk, and we could probably say a hundred other things, time won't allow it, But this is what Habakkuk is asking God to do. He's asking God to throw down their enemies. He's asking God to transform their nation. He's asking God to preserve truth in their society and to bring about righteousness as a way of living once again. In other words, many of the things that you and I, if we were to say, what am I praying for in America today? What do I desire in our country today? I desire for America's enemies to be overthrown. Internal and external enemies. Praying for America's enemies to be overthrown. Those that do not believe in the Constitution. Those that do not believe in freedom. Those that do not believe in liberty. Those that do not believe in what America once was and and should still be. I'm praying for her enemies to be overthrown. I'm praying for righteousness to prevail. I want us to be a righteous nation again. Could you imagine how different of a society we'd be if we were a society that still revered God? Think about day by day the interactions you have with the world culture and and system around us. Think of how much debauchery, think how bereft they are of concept of the true God of the Bible. I'd love for our nation to be a righteous nation again that respects the truth of God's Word. And then I'm praying for real worship to be revived in our nation. Praying for churches to get on fire for God and for God to get glory and, and, and be magnified in churches. You know, I mean, listen, people, people get on to us independent Baptists. They say, well, you're so divisive and you fuss and you fight over all these little, say, you know, things that are of no consequence. No, I'm going to be honest with you now. Uh, the vast majority of denominations have gone to garbage. They have. Uh, the vast majority of them don't believe anything about the Bible. They don't believe anything about truth. They don't believe anything. Now, I know you got a friend or your mama or your papa or somebody, your next door neighbor goes to some church. I ain't mad at them. But I'm saying this, there was a time people say, well, preacher, used to the Methodists and the Baptists could get together and have revival. Yeah, because used to the only thing that separated them was sprinkling. Nowadays, the average Methodist church don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the inspiration of the Word of God. They don't believe in biblical church order. I'm saying this, we ain't moved, they've moved. We're standing right on the same truth we've always stood on. You say, preacher, what would you love? Well, I'd love for there to be such a revival of biblical truth and biblical worship in society today uh, that that kind, of, that kind of fellowship would even be possible once again. Where you, there wouldn't be a daylight's breadth between 
uh, various people that may disagree on certain things, uh, but we can still gather around truths like the gospel, salvation by grace, by faith, uh, the inerrancy of the Word of God. I don't know very many groups that still believe that we have a Bible. I don't know very many groups that still believe that we have a Bible. I mean, they believe in, in the ideal of a Bible, but they don't believe that we actually have a Bible. I'm saying this tonight. I'm saying I desire for our nation to have a revival of true worship and a biblical worldview. Well, now you might say, well, preacher, that's good and everything. Uh, I, I want it to, but can we really expect revival in our nation? Is it really possible for revival to take place? I'd say this. Yes, it is. It is possible. You say, why would you believe that? Well, go back to Habakkuk chapter 3, and I want you to notice our text tonight. Uh, Habakkuk, when he's praying for revival, there are three things that are denoted in his prayer. And it's a short prayer, man. It's only one verse. I mean, just an ensemble of words, really. But he presents to us three reasons why we can expect revival. Number one, uh, we can expect revival because he's working. Look what he says. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. In other words, Habakkuk says this, God, you've been talking to us. You've been giving us a truth. You've been giving us a message. You've been giving us a witness in our lives. He would go on in chapter number 2. The Lord instructed him uh, to take the vision that was given to make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. I'd just very simply say this. I believe revival is possible because God's still dealing with His people. If, if revival is not possible and God is dealing with His people, why is He dealing with them? What would be the point? What would be the sense in it? Habakkuk prays and he says, God, I desire revival and I believe that's possible because you knocked on my door, you rang my bell, you got my attention, you're stirring in my heart and if you're dealing with me, there must be a reason for it. The scariest thing that can happen in a person's life is not for God uh, to begin to stir them, but it's for God to leave them alone in their disobedience. Uh, the final word of judgment that God pronounced on the northern nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, is He said, let Ephraim alone. She's given to her idols. Let her alone. Let her alone. God says this, I'll, I'll render like a lion. I'll corrupt her like a moth. All these various warnings that He gives. And finally He says this, I will go and return unto my own place. You say, preacher, God's still stirring in my heart and in my life. That means He ain't done with you. He's got a plan for your life. And if He's working, then there must be hope that a work can be done. Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. Notice not only because He's working, but because of who's working. He says, O Lord. That word Lord in all capital letters, you know this to be true. If you're a student of the Bible, is the name, the proper name of God over Israel. It's the name we use the phrase Jehovah to describe that name of God, to articulate that name. And whenever God uh, uses that name in Scripture, particularly Habakkuk's day, it is rich with history and testimony of the power of God. I think very often uh, we view the terms Lord and God in a very generic sense. But to the Jew living in that day, using the term Jehovah would be as descript to them as the name Jesus Christ would be to you and I as a New Testament believer. It would evoke not merely a generic concept of God, but it would call up a whole roll call of great miracles and events that had taken place in the history of the nation of Israel. In other words, the God that parted the Red Sea, that's who He's praying to. 
The God, listen, that stopped the sun in its course. That's who he's praying to. Uh, listen, the God that slew 185,000 Assyrians as we preached on this morning. That's the God he's praying to. The God that had the ability to blot out the sun. That's the God that he's praying to. The God that could rend the earth. That's the God that he's praying to. The God that stepped out off uh, away from nothing and stepped onto nothing and pulled back the veil of darkness and flung creation out into existence. That's who he's praying to. And he says, I believe revival is possible because I'm not just praying to some lesser God. I'm not just praying to a preacher. I'm not just praying to a, to a prophet. I'm praying to the God of gods. I'm praying to the God of the universe. I'm praying to Jehovah. And he's proven his ability in our life. You say, preacher, how are we going to have revival? Well, wicked as we are, it's going to take God to have it. Uh, but I got good news for you. God's interested in giving. Uh, if it was up to you or I, revival never could come. I think one of the reasons we struggle to have revival personally in our lives is we view revival as the reward for the super dedicated and the super faithful. And that's not what revival is. Revival is the natural course of the testimony of God in the life of a surrendered person. It's not achieved through striving. Uh, it's not even achieved through suffering. It's achieved through surrender. It's being willing to in totality yield ourselves to God and say, God, here's my life. Do anything you desire with it. When we do that and God will begin to do something remarkable in us. I, I think because of who's working. But, and notice what he says. He says, O oh Lord, revive thy work. I think revival's possible because he's working. I think revival's possible because of who's working. But I think revival's possible because of whose work it is. He says, revive thy work. God has a vested interest in you and I experiencing revival. If revival is the manifestation of the life of Christ through us, the life that God has within Himself, to revive means to make alive again. Uh, the same way that for a person to know God, they have to be born again, right? They've been born the first time, but they have to be spiritually born again. In the same way, we have physical life within us, but we're not asking for more physical life. We're asking that the life of Christ would be manifest through us. A reliving, a reviving, a revelation of that life through us. Now, God has a vested interest in us experiencing that. You say, why is that, preacher? Because that's the means whereby He communicates Himself to this world. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter number 1, that God, uh, who at sundry times and in divers manners in times past, hath spoken unto us uh, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son uh, from heaven. In other words, He's still speaking through Jesus Christ. But He's speaking through the uh, Word of God, the inerrant, preserved, infallible Word of God. Uh, but He's also speaking through the testimony of believers through which the living Word bears witness in their Lives. In other words, it's His work. You and I can't conjure revival. Uh, it's not a matter of, of, of having better singing or better preaching or more people or bigger offerings or better marketing. Revival occurs whenever God does a work in a group of people. And all He requires for that, listen, He don't require no minimum love offering to show up. All He requires is that we yield ourselves a living sacrifice unto Him. But if we'll do that, He has an interest in us being revived. Can I tell you this? There, there's a lot of things I can't speak to about the will of God for your life. 
Uh, there are certain things that I might look at and say, I believe this would be better for you. I believe this job or this house or this choice, this decision, this vehicle, this whatever it might be, I, I believe that'd be wiser. I believe that'd be better. But there's much that if I'm going to stand on scriptural foundation, I'm going to be honest with you, I've got to be silent about it. I, I really can't say definitively, but there's something I can say tonight with full scriptural authority. It's the will of God for every person under the sound of my voice to have revival. It's the will of God for you to get help this week at the meeting. It's the will of God for God to get more of you this week at this meeting. It's His work. He has a vested interest in it. He has made abundantly clear that He desires for His people not to die, but to live. And as such, we can pray in full faith. This is what I meant at the opening of the service. Some of y'all staring at me like a calf staring at a new gate when I was talking about that word revival. I, listen, I ain't fussing. I'm not beating anybody up. I'm not trying to micromanage the way anybody says anything. And nobody said anything that would even prompt me doing it. But I'm saying this. When we say we're having revival, we're saying that because we know it's the will of God for us to have revival. Say, preacher, what happens if we have meetings and and we don't have revival? Uh, That'll be a travesty. That would be a sadness. But it won't be because God wouldn't let us have revival. Because we know God can give us revival. We know that He can. So we, we can expect revival. Why can we expect revival? Well, because He's working and because of who's working and because of whose work it is. But now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, that's all good at one time. There was a time God could do that in society, but I just don't know if God can do it anymore. Now, you might not say that, but your flesh says that. Your flesh whispers in your ear and says, well, I wonder if we're just too wicked. Here's what we do. We say, well, under ideal circumstances, God could have done that. But nowadays in the wicked society we're living in, it's really not possible for God to do it. Can I ask you something? Under what ideal circumstances would God's people need reviving in the first place? Here's the truth of the matter. If you need revival, it's because things ain't working well. It's because they ain't going good. Uh, It's because there's wickedness in society. It's because there's unrighteousness in society. And so instead of trying to go ahead and call the play for God and go ahead and wave the flag and say, well, God, you probably couldn't do it anyway. We're just too bad. We're just too wicked. No, why don't we go ahead and trust God and seek after Him in full faith and see if God can't do a work in our midst. That's what Habakkuk did. Habakkuk praised God. And he makes some interesting statements. I want you to notice it with me. He says this in verse number 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech. God's working in their midst. He says, and was afraid. By the way, this ain't my message. But when he says afraid, he's talking about godly reverence. He's saying, I sat up and listened. I sat up and listened. Me and my daddy were talking this week and we were talking about parenting. We were talking about discipline. Dad said, I was afraid of my daddy. And uh, I said, me too. Uh, but he said, you know, I, I had a, I had a, a, a rational fear. It wasn't a phobia. Phobia is an irrational fear. Uh, there are certain things it's rational to fear. Amen. And uh, he said, you know, I, I, my, he said, my daddy never abused me. He never hurt us in the sense of injuring us or anything like that. But he was a disciplinarian. And he said, when he spoke, we listened. In fact, he said this, mama never had to whip us much. All she had to do is say, daddy's coming home. And that was enough. Amen. Uh, because he was a disciplinarian. So much so that when he spoke, they listened. Can I say this? We ought not be in terror of God. God loves us. But we ought to have a godly reverence such that when God speaks, we set up and listen. We hear what he has to say. That's what Habakkuk says. He said, you know, I heard thy speech and I was afraid. He says, O Lord, revive thy work. 
Now I want you to notice this next phrase. He says, in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years. Make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, this is interesting to me because in this he is denoting when he wants God to give revival. Did you know that the word midst is used some scores of times in your Bible? I'm wanting to say 96 times, but I may be incorrect about that. You could probably easily prove me wrong if I am wrong, but many times the word midst is used. But did you know this is the one and singularly only time in the Bible that it's used within the context of time? He's not saying in the midst as in a geographic statement, but he's saying in the midst as a chronological statement. It's interesting when you go through the course of God's working in Israel as a nation, because here Habakkuk stood and he stands about 2,000 years from Abraham and about 2,000 years, excuse me, not 2,000, but 1,500 years uh, from the cross of Calvary. In fact, it would not be inappropriate to say that Habakkuk, in the plan of God for Israel as a nation, he's standing in the stream of time right smack dab in the middle of it all. In fact, from the uh, inception of, of Israel as a nation until the place when their Messiah is revealed, He is as far away from both of those events as is humanly possible to be in regards to the matter of time. And he says, where I stand right here, I'm praying for revival. I'm praying for revival. Preacher, when is revival possible? I'd say this number one tonight. Revival is possible in times of prophetic darkness. Prophetic darkness. God had prophesied that the nation of Judah was going to be carried away into captivity by the nation of Babylon. Uh, He's literally staring down the loaded gun of God's judgment. He knows that there is no escape. He knows that there is no withholding of the judgment of God upon them as a kingdom. But he still has bold enough to to say, God, I'm praying you'd show up and that you'd do something. Listen, there's a lot of fatalism in society today. I heard someone say this the other day. I don't know if it was me or another preacher but I'm going to take credit for it. He said, listen, we're not victims of prophecy. We're victors in prophecy. Sometimes there's this mentality. People say, well, preacher, we're living in Laodicean day. I agree with you. Preacher, if you look at God's prophetic timetable and prophetic calendar, I mean, we're living in those last days. By the way, can I just say this for all of us prophecy students? The term last days... Uh, it, it does not denote necessarily a brevity of days, but it denotes the order of events on God's prophetic calendar. The last days began with the inception of the New Testament church. In other words, there wasn't nothing left until the Messiah comes back. There was just that period of time, those last days during the church age. So uh, for all of us that might say, Preacher, we living in last days. Yeah, I have been for about 2,000 years. So I'd say this, if people say, well, Preacher, we're living in these last days. All we can do is knuckle down, buckle down, and hold on and try to wait her out, Brother Ken. Just wait for the trumpet to sound. That's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to occupy. And by occupy, what they really mean is stagnate. I'd just point you to an Old Testament prophet that was about as far as you could be from anything looking like good news on the prophetic horizon. And he said, hey, I'm praying for God to do something. I'm praying for God to give revival. I'm praying for God to work in this nation. I'm praying for God to grant mercy in the midst of these days. Hey, listen, if, if, your, if your eschatology makes you a fatalist, 
you've got something mixed up about it. It shouldn't lead us to a place where we say, well, there's no hope. We might as well just sit on our hands. Hey, listen, the spirit of revelation, the spirit of prophecy is the spirit of revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not to fill your bookshelf or mine with theological works. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal to us the person and personality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us love Him more. Make us serve Him more. In other words, if we read the book of Revelation and it makes us lazy, we, something went wrong in our reading of it. Instead, it ought to get us excited. It ought to make us say, hey, what did Paul say? Redeeming the time for the days are evil. Everywhere in the Bible, you won't ever find a place where the Holy Ghost says, just chill out and wait till I show up. Uh, where Christ says, just chill out and wait till I show up. You won't find it anywhere. You won't find any place where He says, I'll tell you what, take it easy and I'll show up when I want to and you just, just sit back and relax and enjoy yourself. Instead, the Spirit message is always to serve, to labor, to do more. You say, preacher, it's harder today. Yeah, and the Bible says we're to be uh, so much the more. That's what the Hebrews writer said. So much the more as you see the day approaching. We shouldn't be doing more or less. We should be doing more. We shouldn't be backing up. We should be buckling down. We should be digging in. We should be diving in more and more and more. It was in the midst of the years, in the midst of God's prophetic calendar, in the times of prophetic darkness. But then I would say this. Look what he says. He says in the midst of the years, he says, make known. Make known. I would say this. In times of prophetic darkness, revival is possible. Even in these Laodicean days we're living in. And by the way, I'm not disputing that we're living in those days. But even in those days, revival is possible. But I'd say this, number two, in times of public ignorance, revival is still possible. Uh, God makes this statement uh, to Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse number 5. He says this, Behold ye among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days. This is what he says, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Down in chapter 2, verse number 2, we already uh, referenced it, but the Lord answered me, Habakkuk said, and this is what God said to him. He said, write the vision, make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. All the way back in the prophecy of Amos, God had warned that the children of Israel would come to a time in their history where they would have a famine. He says, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. And those are the days that Habakkuk is living in a time when publicly, broadly, societally speaking, they have put out of their mind the concept of the true God of Israel. Whatever vestiges of, of, of worship exist, they are just hollowed out formalism. And it's a time when people don't have a clear concept of who God is. And you say, preacher, we got to at least have a half spiritual society for God to give us revival. No, it wouldn't be revival if we already had to be vibed in the first place. It's revival in the sense of even in times whenever society has lost her concept of who God is, that's when you ought to be praying for revival. We live in a time of mass confusion. We live in a time, I was speaking to someone about it the other day, where we have to be descript almost to the point of being elementary in the way we describe concepts of the Bible to people because society is so bankrupt of any knowledge of who God is. When you talk to people and you say saved, you know what saved means, but they don't. When you say the gospel, you know what the gospel means, but they don't. When you say faith, you know what that means. They've only ever heard that lip fall off the fork and tongue of a politician. They don't know what faith means in a biblical way. And so you have to explain those things to people. Why? Because we live in a society that is so bankrupt of knowledge of God. Say, so, oh, preacher, it's awful. It's hopeless. No, that's exactly 
when revival can take place. Let me just say this, and I'll move on from this point. I'd lot rather have somebody that don't know nothing than somebody that knows all the wrong things. We're finally getting to a place where a bunch of cultish concepts are getting emptied out just through the sheer rank Marxist atheism that is so pervasive in our society. Hey, listen, at least now we're not having to undo what a bunch of cults have done in people's heads and hearts. At least now they got no concept of God. Uh, pretty soon we'll be to the place where when we tell them about Jesus, we won't have to first explain why those 75 other Jesuses that the cults preach are not true, but the Jesus of the Bible is true. All we'll have to do is point them to the Word of God and say, here He is. Here He is. I'm saying this. There's a lot of stuff we lament and whine about. We say, ah, oh, things are just so wicked. It's just impossible. Times of public ignorance that we're living in. Nobody knows who God is. Hey, they need somebody to tell them. How should they hear without a preacher? We're living in the exact kind of days that God likes to work and in days that Habakkuk prayed for revival. And then finally, I'd say this and be done. Look what he says in wrath. He says, remember mercy. When he uses the term wrath, he's not just speaking of some reactionary, petulant anger on God's part. But he's speaking of the judicial displeasure of God. He's talking about God pouring out judgment on the nation. And he says, even in the midst of that, I'm praying that you'd remember mercy. You know, some people's idea about the way that we're living today, and I hear people say it all the time. All the time I hear people say, well, you know, we're under the judgment of God. Every time something happens, people will say, well, you know, we're under God's judging this nation. We're under the judgment of God. You say, preacher, is that true or not? I'm not God. I'll not speak on his behalf, nor will I attribute every single uh, thing that takes place to being directly instigated by God. I will tell you this. God has every right to judge us. If He does, it shouldn't surprise us because this word or this world has walked contrary to His word for so long. Our nation has walked contrary to His word. God told us that if we walk contrary to Him, He'd walk contrary to us. So it shouldn't surprise us if He does. But really, I mean, I, I can't say that every event that happens, this is the judgment of God. But I'd tell you this, if what we're saying is, well, God's judging our nation... Therefore, we don't have to seek revival. We've left scriptural territory. Because Habakkuk says, Lord, I know you're pouring out judgment. I know the things that are going to happen are foreordained. We've, we've brought them upon ourselves. I know probably no amount of, of prayer or even repentance at this stage would forestall the judgment of God. But even in the midst of that judgment, I'm praying that you would work. In other words, you say, preacher, we're living under times of providential judgment. But you know, even in times of providential judgment, God's still working in people's hearts and lives. Can I draw your attention to a little family uh, in the Old Testament? Their story parallels, it, 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 it is chronologically aligned with the book of Judges. You remember the book of Judges is a period of time of deep disobedience and rebellion, persistent, obstinate backsliding against God. The theme of the book of Judges is the children of Israel would sin, they would backslide, God would send judgment upon them, they would cry out to God for a deliverer, for a judge, God would send a judge, would raise up a judge in their midst, and He would then deliver them, men like Samson, men like Gideon, they would deliver them from their oppressors, and then as soon as they were shot and clear of all that, as soon as it was over with, they'd start to commit sin again, and rebel and this vicious cycle 13 different times presents itself in the book of Judges. 
to the degree that by the time that you come to the close of the book of Judges, and I won't take the time to go through it, you ought to read it on your own time, but it is a season of time in the history of the nation of Israel that is so depraved that they literally almost devour each other. They almost annihilate and obliterate the tribe of Benjamin because of an atrocity that is committed by one of the cities of Benjamin. They are literally living under the judgment of God. So much so that God, to deal with them, begins to send famines into the land to chasten them for their sins. It's in the midst of one of those famines uh, that a little family from Bethlehem takes vacation down from Bethlehem into Moab. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi, the two sons, Malon and Chilion, they pack up, they go down into Moab. By the way, in disobedience, in direct opposition to the Word of God and the command of God, they go down there. Ten years passes. Uh, their children die. Elimelech dies. God brings a woman by the name of Ruth, a young Moabitess girl, into the family by marrying one of those sons. She's brought into the family of God. You know, you've studied the book of Ruth, the beauty of that story. But can I remind you of this? Even through that, you know that Ruth finds her way. She marries a man by the name of uh, Boaz. And Boaz, by the way, is the, uh, is the son, if I'm not mistaken, of Rahab the harlot. And uh, Ruth and Boaz would go on to have a little grandbaby uh, by the name of Jesse. And he would go on to have a son by the name of David who would be king over Israel. In other words, uh, Ruth and, and Rahab the harlot and uh, Elimelech and, and Naomi and Boaz, all this family whose story is so stained with darkness would become a part of the lineage of the Messiah of God. You say, what was God doing, preacher? In the midst of wrath... He was remembering mercy. In the midst of pouring out the judgment of God upon the nation, He was reviving His work. He was bringing to pass His plan in their lives as a people and as a nation. And I'm saying this, you say, preacher, we're living in days God's judging this nation. Yeah, and you know what a nation under judgment needs more than anything else? It needs revival. We're living in exactly the days when revival is possible. We all ask this question, is it possible? In this nation, in these days? And the answer is yes, it is possible. But could it be that we're not seeing revival in our nation because we're not seeking it in our churches? Could it be we're not seeing revival in our churches because we're not seeking it in our families? Could it be we're not seeing revival in our families because we're not seeking it for ourselves? Can I remind you, Habakkuk longed to see revival in his nation. His entire burden, and by the way, that's what it's called. That's what the very first verse of the book of Habakkuk says. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. It is a burden upon him. He had a burden for revival. But you know, he did not see revival himself until something occurred in his life. Look back in chapter 2. I want to read one verse to you. In Habakkuk 2, in, in chapter 1, he's been complaining to God. He's been griping about how wicked society is. Uh, that's what you and I do. So in, in chapter 1, he's where most of us are. Sitting around, pointing fingers, all how wicked it is, how hopeless it all is. But in chapter 2, this is what he does. He, he gets silent. He says this, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. You know, in verse number uh, 2, that's when God answers. The Lord answered me and said, write the vision. Make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. All the complaining he did in chapter 1 didn't bring revival. 
All the looking outward and finger pointing, which by the way was justified. They were living in a wicked society. Wasn't nothing wrong with him pointing out that wickedness. But that didn't bring revival. What brought revival when he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set me upon a watch. I'm going to set me a place upon the wall. I'm going to keep silent. I'm going to listen for what he has to say unto me. Then revival came. In other words, in our lives, revival doesn't come from us sufficiently lambasting society's ills. Revival comes. It's not, listen, some of us think that that the key to revival is, is, a, is a complaint competition. That's not it. The key is self-examination. It's to say, what can God do in my life, my heart, right now? He didn't experience revival until He sought for it for Himself, personally. As long as our, our pursuit of revival is centered on fixing all those people that disagree with us, we're not going to have revival. As long as our pursuit of revival is centered on fixing all those things in society that we find disgusting and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, disquiet, we're not going to experience revival. But when we'll turn our attention on self and say, you know, Lord, I can't change all that, but I'm the only person that can change what's in here. And God, I'm surrendering myself unto you and I'm going to let you have your will, your way in my life. You know what you'll find? Then revival can take place. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. I wonder who'd be willing to seek it for themselves. Uh, you've probably prayed untold number of times for revival for our nation. And I listen, that's good. I recommend that to you. I'm not criticizing you. But revival ain't going to happen until we seek it for ourselves. When was the last time you prayed and said, God, revive me? Revive me. I know you can revive others, but God, I need revival. I need your working in my life. I need to be closer. I need to be more committed. I want to sense and feel your presence more deeply in my life. When was the last time you sought it for you? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.